Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go, so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. The monsters will now start attacking Tokyo. Turn up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the death. And welcome to episode 177 of the Kaiju Cast, a podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. My name is Kyle, and this is the third episode of June 2016, and coincidentally, our Daikaiju discussion for Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dinah, Warriors of the Starlight. I am flying solo today, and that's going to be interesting for a discussion, so I guess I'll be talking to myself, really. While I'm not going to be covering any news this episode, we definitely have some catastrophic events coming up, just, you know, updates to G-Fest and stuff like that. Plus, we do have some music to play, and we're going to start things off with Brave Love Tiga by Chikyu Boydan from Ultraman Tiga, which was a request from Michael.
For those who are interested in keeping track of the music and the tracks we play, that first track, once again, was Brave Love Tiga from Ultraman Tiga. And then the second one we played was the symphonic suite of Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dinah. This was the third movement (laughs) called Super Guts. And this is sort of from the movie, but it was actually a symphonic arrangement of tracks from that film. Uh, And that was, of course, by Tatami Yano. And like I said, that was from the movie tonight, which once again, class, it is time for our Daikaiju discussions. Every month, the Kaiju cast takes a look at one film from the giant monster landscape and tasks the listeners with submitting their thoughts, questions, and reviews for the following discussion episode. Thanks to an online tool, I have randomly assigned one movie to each month, ensuring that this podcast will keep going for a long, long time. And of course, that's what I used to say, but I've got to change it at some point. (laughs) So... Now, before I go watch this movie, I thought it'd be fair to announce to everybody listening that I do not know very much about this era of Ultraman. In fact, for me, I've only watched Ultra Q from 1966, the original Ultraman from 1966. Those two series, I've seen them in full. I've seen some of uh, of Ultra 7, and then you got to flash forward to a couple different series. May I think maybe a couple of episodes of Leo and of uh, Ultraman 80, and Ultraman Tiga, actually, which we'll, you'll hear me talk about in a second. But other than the stuff from, you know, the long, long, long time ago, then I haven't really seen any kind of Ultraman stuff, and I wanted to find out a little bit more, get a little background that would help me out with this discussion, or at least understanding where this movie is going. So I asked a good friend of mine, Mr. Bob Johnson, who uh, runs Bay Area Film Events and also is part of the team at Sci-Fi Japan. You've heard that name a million times, I'm sure, on this podcast. Uh, Well, I asked Bob to come on and talk to me a little bit about the history of Ultraman leading up to Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dinah, Warriors of the Starlight. So the deal is that I have not seen a lot of Ultraman, but this movie, because it was released in the United States on DVD... I yeah. put it onto the Daikaiju discussion, and now it's here. So I need to watch the episode and talk about it. But, you know, with the Godzilla movies, the Gamera movies, the every, all of that, I know a lot about that stuff, you know, just like right. all the other mega fans. Like, But with Ultraman stuff, first up, like peeling the onion back, when it comes to Ultraman Tiga, Ultraman Dinah, uh, Warriors of the Starlight, 
when I first watched this movie, I had zero context for it, right? So I would have liked to know some context, even if that might have gone over my head at the time. So, like, now I know that Ultraman Dinah was the sequel to Ultraman Tiga, right? Right. And then that Ultraman... Ultraman Gaia came after that. Right, and they had another movie, the Battle in Hyperspace movie after that. Which you did re- you did review, right? Yeah, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you guys liked it much. I actually liked that one a lot. I can't remember if, like, I want to say that back, because back in the day, like, I wasn't really, I didn't know anything about Ultraman. Well, this will come up yeah. in the pot and when we talk. It's like, I know a lot more about Ultraman than I did back then. Sure. I know a, way more about Ultraman than I did in 19... 19- or whenever these came out on DVD, 98, 99, something like that. So uh, now I'm ready to know more. So like, you know, 66 was Ultra Q and Ultraman, then 67 was Ultra 7. And then there were series after that. The question I have, which is sort of what we were chatting about the other day, was like, I assumed there was an Ultraman series every year, couple of years, whatever, just on and on and on and on. Layoffs, I guess. Or... And but isn't isn't Tiga doesn't Tiga come directly after a hiatus? So like the the hiatus between well, Ultraman eighty and not really. Um, yeah, Ultraman eighty obviously it was in nineteen eighty, but that was right in the midst of the uh, animation boom in Japan, where you had uh, animation would took a big leap basically in the late seventies, early eighties in quality with things like Be Forever Yamato and Phoenix 2772 from Osamu Tezuka. And uh, in fact, Ultraman 80 was going directly head-to-head with the 1980 Astro Boy series. Okay. And uh, didn't do quite as well as Tsuburaya had hoped. Um, You know, basically, it did well enough to make 50 episodes, but it wasn't like a big hit. Right. So, also during that time... Subaraya was going through a big, big transition where they almost went broke, basically. Um, and that was probably mid to late eighties when, when Bandai came in and okay. bought up like 49%, I think of the company. Yeah. I think I, I have heard like, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Like just enough to not get controlling interest so that the Subaraya family would still control it. Yeah. So like the Subaraya family had like 51% and they had 49, something like that. Interesting. Okay. At that time too, you had Noburo Subaraya was running the company and he was really interested in trying to get Ultraman over to the United States. And that's why like you had things like Ultraman The Adventures Begins, which was like a animated movie co-production with Hanna-Barbera. Right. Like a cartoon, right? That that actually counts. I, one of the things right. I have seen. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah, it was like Ultraman, what, Beth, Chuck, and Scott. And uh, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, it didn't do well enough to warrant a series. It made a pilot and it was syndicated throughout the country. Um, but it showed on stations like in the afternoon or whatever and it kind of died from there. It had like a VHS release and that was about it. But... Um, so shortly after that, that's when they went to Australia and tried to do uh, uh, what was it, Ultraman Towards the Future? Okay, I have. I think uh, that may have been the very first Ultraman anything I ever saw. It was a very yeah. like the first episode of that. 
the most amazing thing, just sidebar here, I think of that series, is here in San Francisco, Channel 44 was showing it every day, two episodes back to back for about six months. Now, that series only had 13 episodes. Wow, that's a lot so of So you're showing like <laughs> twice, you know, two episodes per day, five days a week. Well, you're, you're rifling through that series like every week. But um, the thing was, is that series was, uh, it was marketed interestingly because it was offered at, in syndication for free. But the company that produced it put their own commercials in there. <laughs> so, you know, they were selling commercial time basically for this series and then they'd give it to TV stations and they'd have a few open spots in there for the local TV stations to sell ads. And so it was used as filler. And I don't know about other parts of the country, but like I say here in San Francisco on KBHK TV 44, it was like, you know, 530 in the morning, 430 in the morning, something <laughs> like that. But yeah, two episodes back to back for six months. So just cycle right through it but what, anyway what, you know, what it was the year again on that that last uh series oh god that was uh 92 or 93 okay okay and uh you're helping me piece together my time puzzle here there you go there you go so 94 they decided well we're going to america the big problem with australia was they said they had the capabilities they said they had the uh the know-how to to do the effects and all that, but they didn't. So most of the budget for the show that Subaraya gave them went to developing special effects and developing the techniques to do it. So that didn't, not all the budget went straight into the series itself. But, um, you know, it wasn't bad. It was shot on video and, you know, Ultraman was in spandex instead of, uh, instead of like a wetsuit. (laughs) <laughs> but uh so anyway so then they went to uh to america and uh did uh ultraman the ultimate hero which again was about 13 episodes and really went nowhere um it was pretty bad i don't know if you saw any of that it was never really released over here and super kind of did a quick release over there and then sat on it buried it deep yeah but uh uh august and i were down there uh, during the filming, it was being filmed up in the Burbank Hills. And, uh, it was an old burned out, I think it was a Charlie Brown's restaurant or something there. And they were in the parking lot there doing the, uh, doing the special effects, shooting the fight scenes and things. So they had this raised platform and they were using the actual mountains of Burbank and the, and the sky as the backgrounds. And then they'd, uh, they'd be there like doing the low, filming and stuff and (laughs) we were watching him film uh ultraman versus dada and uh but we interviewed king wilder who was a director and he really didn't get it at all because we were asking him about it and he's like well you know i don't know why ultraman yells because uh his mouth never moves (laughs) and i don't know why he punches monsters because it doesn't really have any effect right so okay so ultraman's not going to yell he's not going to punch so what's he going to do you know I guess kicking was also sort of an extension of the punching. So all he really did was shoot rays and shove the monsters around. (laughs) And uh, the monsters looked great, but they didn't hold up too well. So you couldn't give them too much abuse. 
so the fight scenes became really lame and really, you know, the whole thing was pretty bad. But, um, but yeah, they had like Bill Mooney, I think was in one episode and they had a couple other, you know, B grade stars that were in it, but it just really went nowhere. So, so was, while they were doing that, Subaraya was shooting uh, Gridman, which came over here. You probably saw as Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. I've seen the toys for sure. Yeah, yeah. they kind of Power Rangerized it, where they took all the Japanese actors out and put American kids in there, and um, and did it that way. And it was yeah, it was okay, but uh, but it definitely yeah, made it over here, and it got into syndication and shown quite a bit but that was kind of their foray back into an ultraman like tv show okay character and they also shot a uh pilot for ultraman naos and ultraman 7 or ultra 721 and uh that was probably about a 10 minute pilot eight minute pilot something like that but uh the stations and bandai kind of said well you know that's just kind of a retread of all the other stuff so why don't you do something different? And that's when they came out with uh, the two movies. And this was like also the early 90s, 94, 95, the Ultraman Zeus and Ultraman Zeus 2. Okay. And uh, those were more, you know, the the design of Ultraman Zeus was a little different and uh, it was more of a comedy. And... Uh, Oh my I, god, yeah. I think I have Remember this that? on yeah. VHS unsubtitled. Like, uh, electric toothbrush to turn into Ultraman Zeus and he worked into he worked in a uh, gas station because yes. the, the company that owned the gas station was like a big sponsor of the show. And so, yeah, I remember Kenagon made some appearances too. Dirty, right? Yeah. Oh so, man, like, that's Ultraman crazy. Would be, you know, there's one one part of the movie where the monster's standing in this big oil slick and Ultraman won't go anywhere near him because he doesn't want to step in the oil. You know, he's like got the, the phobia of getting dirty. But, <laughs> um, and he also, when he did the uh, spacium beam pose, instead of having, and it's hard to describe, I guess instead of having the, uh, the left arm horizontal and the right arm behind it vertical, he had it opposite because he practiced in the mirror. So he had it. So he had it backwards. So the right arm was horizontal and the left arm was vertical behind it. But uh, you know, it's like the Ultraman Zeus too. The one thing about that was it made a sort of leap into CG, where they had some CG like fight scenes and uh, Zeus and like the evil Ultraman Zeus were uh, Ultraman Shadow. They were. Uh, like fighting in the air and it was all CG and you know, it was okay. It's passable, you know, they're, yeah. they're getting there. And then soon after that, they did Ultraman Tiga, which was the first actual Japanese made Ultraman TV series since, um, since Ultraman 80, basically. All right. So as far as like, what can you tell me that would bridge the gap between Tiga, me knowing Tiga is a brand new character, and actually, I should warn the listeners that I actually have seen some of Ultraman Tiga when they brought it to the States uh, with the Fox yeah. network. Yeah, that was totally dubbed real goofy and tongue-in-cheek. And yeah, I, th- I think if they did kind of a straightforward dub of Ultraman Tiga, it's a good series. You know, it probably would have done well. But yeah, it was just 
with a real strange dubbing. But yeah, yeah. There's one scene I remember where, uh, and Brad told me about this one, but it's uh, this alien from space. He's like in bed, like, and he's being interrogated. And, you know, in the Japanese episode, he's speaking some alien language, you know, that they don't understand. So they're asking these questions and he's answering in his native tongue and they don't understand. Well, when they dubbed it, he speaks Japanese <laughs> and they're talking in English and they don't understand him. And his lines are literally, I'm talking Japanese. Why can't you understand me? You're from Japan, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, <laughs> that was actually humor. So, I mean, the rest of it was pretty bad. But uh, I will say, though, that, you know, Funimation did release the entire series of Tiga subtitled. Oh, that's so cool. If you really cool. want to see Ultraman Tiga, that's the way to go. So I'm sure it's out of print now, but you can probably find copies on eBay and stuff. Yeah. So Ultraman Tiga happened and then was there a this is sort of like where I think the series is going. Do they do a series of episodes and then a movie? Is it did Ultraman Tiga start that? Because I feel like Well, the, I mean they did Ultraman Tiga and then uh-huh. it went right into Ultraman Dyna. Okay, okay. Like a week later. And then Oh both immediately. Were, what's that? Did you say a week later? Well yeah, I mean basically Tiga went right into Dyna. Oh, okay. Went right into Gaia. So, um, but Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dyna were popular enough that they did do the Ultraman Tiga, Ultraman Dyna movie. Okay. Now, so with these movies, was Subaraya trying to uh, extend the story that was on TV and then, in addition, hopefully gain some more viewers? Is that... Is that what they were trying to do with these movies? Well, I mean, it was all kind of, by this time, Kazuo Tsuraya was uh, running the company. And he was all about, you know, hey, we're making stuff again. We're producing, you know, let's do this and this. And the movies basically, yeah, they were an extension of the TV shows. And it's kind of like, you know, hey, let's get the kids out. They like Tiga, they like Dinah. Here's a big, like, event film where the two of them are teaming up. And, uh... And even, you know, with the Ultraman Gaia movie, once Gaia started, um, that was the same thing. Although, you know, the interesting thing about that, and you said you, and you did review it before, but uh, it, it was like the real world. And yes. the kid gets that sphere and he wishes that he could see Ultraman Dinah. And that pulls Gam and, and Gaia into the real world. Because I bought this movie, Warriors of the Starlight sort of sight unseen. This was back when I was like, really did not make a lot of money at all. So (laughs) I bought one of the two DVDs that were released and I chose this one. And then later on, like years and years later, I finally saw the Gaia movie and I was like, Oh, I picked the wrong movie. This one was way, (laughs) way better. Uh, But yeah, uh, yeah. The, the (laughs) Tiga Dino movies more kind of straightforward from the series type of thing. Yeah. So, uh, last question, this, yeah. um, what would you tell people who did not know anything at all about the characterization and the teams or whatever? Like, would there be any kind of primer you would give to somebody going into Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dyna warriors of the starlight? If they knew nothing about Ultraman Tiga or Ultraman Dyna. Starting with Tiga, it was a little, they tried to change things up a little bit. So they're not from, Nebula M78, like all the other 
previous Ultra Brothers had been from. Um, they're from ancient civilizations that were, you know, buried underground and all that. So they're more like earthbound instead of spacebound. Okay. So there's really no connection. You know, you're not going to see Ultraman or Ultra 7 or Taro or any of those guys appear in any of those three series because it's a totally different, like different concept. And another thing they did to kind of shake it up is they gave Tiga and Dinah the uh, ability to take three different forms. So as they're fighting, they have like a multi-form, which is kind of like everything in balance. Mm -hmm. And then they can go to a power form, which is like really strong, but not real agile. And then there's like a, uh, like a flying form or, you know, a form that's more kind of acrobatic. It's not as strong, but more acrobatic and better, you know, stronger rays and things. Um, depending on, what they're fighting or what skills they need. Um, the rest of it though is pretty standard ultra fair. You know, you've got the, uh, you know, from Tiga, you've got guts and then from, uh, Dinah, you've got super guts, which are the, uh, sort of science patrol teams. And, uh, it like the global unified task, task force. force yeah. <laughs> so, um, I thought Gaia is like XIG and I try to what the heck is XIG, XIG, but it's like, the X is like the second letter. So expanded interceptive guardians. You know, so it's like all these crazy acronyms, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, the rest of it, like I say, is pretty much kind of standard ultra fair. You've got the hero that's in the science patrol type team and he becomes the ultra hero to fight the monsters. And they both have color timers so they can, you know, after three minutes it starts blinking and they're, they have to defeat the monster before they lose their powers, et cetera, et cetera. So, if you've seen any Ultraman previous, you're not going to be totally lost. Right, right. Yeah. There's a couple new concepts here and there, but nothing that's going to totally confuse you if you don't know them going in. All right. So I, I got just one last question for you. This is just almost like a musing question that I have. Uh -oh. So the thing that brought me to that movie, the reason I chose this over the Gaia film was the monster that appears at the very beginning of the film, uh, Garanda. Uh-huh. So now that I am a little more familiar with Ultraman stuff, is there any relation to Garanda and Sibos? They both have that sort of skeleton monster look. Not really. I mean, it's not really, um, like I say, the, the universes aren't connected. I mean, it's probably, it's got a very similar oh, type yeah. look, but I mean, it's not, they're not related in any way. All right, so I'm just saying that that's canon. Bob Johnson has just said that Sibos and Garanda are not related because of the different universes. But if that was, you know, I think what he's saying there is that Garanda is our universe's Sibos. Much more scary in real life. There you go. <laughs> but uh, I, I think the, the main iconic monster that really kind of came out of those series is uh, Golza, who was in the first episode of Ultraman Tiga. And he returned again in a later episode of Tiga. And yeah, he was in a, a couple other series of movies, but he's kind of more the more iconic type monster. But there's been quite a few pretty cool ones throughout right the on. series. So, um, so yeah. And then, of course, Tiga Dino, you got the monster at the end, which is like, you know, 100 times bigger than they are type of thing. So. Yeah, that thing is nuts. That thing is crazy. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up so I can go watch the movie. But Bob, thank you so much yeah, for no problem. hooking me up with a little insider info before I dive into Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dinah, Warriors of the Starlight. Enjoy it. Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dinah. Armed with the latest in ultra-scientific weaponry, the Super Global Unlimited Task Squad, Defenders of Mankind. But when interplanetary invaders launch a devastating attack, and send robotic super beasts to threaten all of civilization, Challenging even the power of the mighty Ultraman Dyna. Planet Earth teeters on the brink of total annihilation. And the legendary hero, Ultraman Tiga, returns. Together, they take on the mightiest invaders the silver screen has ever dared to show in an all-new thrill-packed theatrical feature film. Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dyna. Okay, so I just finished watching Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dyna, Warriors of the Starlight. Uh, and since I don't have people around me to talk to, uh, just you, the listener... I thought maybe I'd break form a little bit, but I'm still going to try and keep it to my standard discussion topics. Point being, initial thoughts. Um, I have seen this movie a couple of times before. I know I saw it right when I bought it, and I think I saw it again afterwards. Um, plus, I do remember before seeing the film, I remember hanging out with August Ragoni in San Francisco, and he told me, about being on set and seeing some of this movie filmed. He specifically told me about the scene where both Ultramen are doing backflips and cartwheels at the same time. Now, I'll be honest, I don't recognize any of the names that I'm about to uh, say here. This was directed by Kazuya Konaka, written by Keiichi Hasegawa. The music was by Tatsumi Yano. And it came out on March 24th, 1998. So yeah, that's a bunch of names that I do not recognize at all. And uh, I'd say the same thing for the uh, actor list, too. I didn't recognize a lot of names there. But, you know, this is an Ultraman movie based on two series that I really don't know. Like I I mentioned, I, I've seen a little bit of Ultraman Tiga, but it was years and years and years ago. So some of the characters looked vaguely familiar. Plus, like I said, I'd seen this before. But in terms of overall people in the film, it was like a standard Ultraman casting. So I'm guessing that the casting was sort of set in stone for the most part because you had your Ultraman Tiga cast and you had your Ultraman Dyna cast. Of course, there are probably some new people like uh, the evil alien lady. Speaking of aliens, 
Yeah, I thought that the aliens looked a little bit like the alien Chibu or Chibul from Ultra 7. And then, of course, that uh, I will obviously say that the, what drew me to this film was the monster, and the monster was basically a monster version of those aliens. That I thought was kind of cool. I did not really think that the CGI alien aspect of it was cool, but, you know, they got to do what they got to do. I think going into this movie, I'm expecting, well, I'm not expecting to be wowed by the special effects. It's great to see so much practical effectory going on, but, oh, and man, whew, the CGI in this film. Anyway, I, like I said, I, I might break form. So my initial thoughts on this film, it's not good, and it's not like the worst thing I've ever seen, but it's passable. And I'm sure as an Ultraman movie featuring two heroes and their two teams, it's got to be somewhat of a thrill for people who liked both of those series. Okay, and for the record, because I'm about to get into something when I kick off the things I didn't like about it, um, for the record, I am watching the Image Entertainment DVD that came out in the early 2000s. Technically speaking, this movie has a dub and a Japanese uh, audio version with subtitles, and it's got, you know, both 5.1 surround and stereo. I chose to watch the dubbed version with the subtitles on because I wanted to see if the dub, well, I wanted to see how bad the dub was. Uh, I also wanted to see if the dub was just basically what you call dub titles or the reverse of the subtitles. So I don't know what happened there, but now I'm going into my dislikes about the film. The script was actually, uh, like the subtitle script was kind of fine. In like I said earlier, this is a serviceable film, uh, especially in the Ultraman franchise, I would imagine. But I feel like those subtitles were provided by Subaraya, and then the company, Image Entertainment, got uh, their own people to just create a script of those subtitles. And then they hired actors, I'm guessing. I don't know what the story is here. But uh, they hired actors to do the voice acting. And then I also imagine that the people who recorded it said, well, we'll give you some options here. For X amount of dollars, we'll just record it for you. And for X plus amount of dollars, hey, X plus, anyway, uh, for X plus amount of dollars, we'll like totally mix it for you and give it effects and do all the stuff that you know, you'd hear if you were actually watching the film in its native audio. And then Image Entertainment said, whoa, no, that's way too expensive. We're just going to go for the recording. Because every single voice actor sounds like they're right at the same point on the mic. They don't have any volume control. No effects on anything. So there's a car at one point with, you know, an announcer, like big speakers on the outside of it. And that car is driving down the road making an announcement. And it just, it sounds like I'm talking into the microphone right now. Instead of what it would sound like if you were in Japan where, you know, it'd be going down the road, so you'd have to back away from the mic and be like, Attention! Capsula is coming through the city! Capsula is coming through the city! And then you run effects on it, 
and then you make it sound like it's far away. Anyway, uh, they didn't do any of that. The audio mix was horrible, and I'm going to say that because the actors might not have been so good combined with the script not being so good because like even if you're watching a movie with you know in this native Japanese language with the English subtitles your brain has to read those subtitles right you're sort of missing something in between what the actors are saying and what the is on the screen very little is lost but there is still you know a little bit this you're just not gonna be able to get while those subtitles would work in the context of just reading it and trying to read the emotions on screen, the people who were acting in this script, uh, which apparently were very close, like 99, 97% identical to the subtitles that were on the screen. So it was like dub titles. They dubbed what was on the screen. Anyway, I don't know why I went off on that big tangent, but, but the combination of the voice acting and the script, along with the movie itself, really was kind of painful at times. So I would say, hands down, the worst aspect of this movie is the whole dub situation. Avoid it like the plague, my friends. I'm only talking about this movie. You know, additionally, things I didn't like in this film, since I'm the only one in the room, I did not care for... Uh, how reliant the story was on the cast of Ultraman Dinah and the cast of Ultraman Tiga, specifically their science patrol. Super Guts. Um, first off, what a name, right? Guts. <laughs> Secondly, uh, they were bizarre. The, the humans that were acting in this, I did not get those characters at all, and I felt like I was missing something because I'd never watched the show. So I think I would totally come back to this at some point if I watched some episodes of Ultraman Dinah and maybe a couple more episodes of Ultraman Tiga. I think I should just move on to things that I liked about this film. Obviously, the number one thing for me on a personal level was Garanda, the monster from the beginning. Like I think I said earlier, I saw that in like a hobby Japan and I was fascinated. I was like, oh, it's like a skeleton version of Destroya. And so when this movie came out on DVD, I knew that this is the one that had Garanda in it. And so that's why I bought Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dinah, Warriors of the Starlight. But Garanda is not the only suit in this movie that I, I thought was cool. I actually really do think that the robot, which is named Death Facer was a pretty cool concept, and, like, I enjoyed the CGI. That was probably the best CGI in the entire movie because a lot of the other CGI looked very bad. Very bad. Anyway, uh, moving on. I guess other things that I liked in this film are just sort of generic things. Like, I think it's cool that this movie was basically an alien invasion film, although that's nothing new for Ultraman by any stretch of the imagination. I also kind of liked the music. I mean, it was, like the movie, it was serviceable, but it was absolutely evocative of what I would consider to be, like, hero music from Japan. They even had the trope of the rock song at the end. I believe it was called Shining on Love by Hironobu Kageyama and Tatsuya Maeda. And I love that, you know, a good rock number at the end of the film, right? 
Man, I tell you, I was really tempted to actually take my phone and record my thoughts on this as it was happening, just sort of like a running diary from start to finish, not like a commentary, just, you know, as something happens, as it reminds me of something, I'll make a note of it. Maybe that's what I'll do in the updated and newly changed Daikaiju discussion in the future. But uh, I think for now, I'm going to wrap up my own thoughts and just kind of say, this movie is, uh, it's kind of underwhelming for me. It's not that I have anything against Ultraman Tiga or Ultraman Dinah. They seem like great guys. But for me, this movie just didn't get me excited. I mean, there were parts of it that were cool, and there are things about it that I like. But overall, I feel like there are way better choices when you're pulling a movie off the shelf. And to me, I guess I just would say... Do not show this to a kaiju newbie. This should be something I would, you know, a lot of times we say the kaiju completionist or, you know, people who have watched all the movies, now it's time to move on to these other things. So yeah, if you've never seen a Godzilla movie, don't watch this. In fact, wait until you've seen all the Godzilla films, all of the camera films, all of the other associated Toho and uh, Daie and Shochiku and uh, Toei, you know, all of that stuff. Watch all of the kaiju stuff and then start watching Ultraman. And in fact, why don't you go ahead and start watching Ultraman all the way up until this movie, then watch this movie and let me know what you think because I'd be very interested. Now that's going to do it for me. We did get some homework submissions. We are going to start things off with Michael Deke. Michael says, to be honest, he's not all that knowledgeable when it comes to the Heisei Ultraman series, but Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dinah, Warriors of the Starlight, was a pretty satisfying movie. He thinks it should have been called Ultraman Dinah the movie because Tiga only shows up in the final battle near the movie's conclusion, which is kind of a shame since Tiga is a fan favorite Ultra. He doesn't really know how to describe the story as it just feels like it could have been a two-part episode in the series. The supporting characters are somewhat likable, as they give great advice to Asukoa, such as Captain Hibiki and former Guts Captain Iruma. But they easily fall into the Monera Seijin's trap by building Prometheus. The action scenes were quite entertaining, and Dinah's first battle with Death Facer reminded him of both Ultraman's battle with Zeton and Ultra 7's battle with King Joe in front of the TDF base. Mai then grabs a bazooka, and Michael was hoping that it was going to be an homage to how the Ultra Guard used an explosive known as Rayton R-30 to immobilize King Joe, but it went absolutely nowhere. Michael feels as if this movie was just too big of a scale for two Ultras, which is even more of a burden since Tiga and Dinah don't exist in the same universe as the Showa-era Ultras. The same can be said for Gaia, Cosmos, Nexus, and Max, which take place in their own respective continuities. The Ultraman series didn't return to the Showa timeline until Ultraman Mabius in 2006, as it featured not only kaiju and aliens, both old and new, but it also featured the return of all the Showa Ultras. Michael would highly recommend Mabius to any newcomer to the franchise, as it truly defines what it means to be Ultraman, and you get to learn about what happens in the Showa era without having to watch hundreds of episodes of the older shows. But in the years since, the series has been getting kind of gimmicky with Ultraman Ginga, Victory, X, and now Orb using cards and toys a la Kamen Rider Decade and Kaizoku Sentai Gokaiger. Man, I hope I said that right. 
And even though those shows are good, you just can't beat the message of not giving up and pursuing your dreams. Three stars for the heroes from beyond them. Thank you for the recommendation. I am definitely going to check out Ultraman Mabius. And next up, Mike Keller was going to start this review by saying it was his first viewing of this film, but halfway through, he realized that he had seen this before, once at the Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles during G-Fest 2000. It obviously didn't leave much an impression on him at that time. The second go-around, he's come to the conclusion that there's more bad than good about the movie. It is difficult for Mike to express just what he dislikes so much about the film. He guesses that it ultimately feels so unnecessary. Of course, this is a redundant statement because all movies, being pieces of entertainment, are unnecessary by their very nature. But this doesn't add anything to the Tiga Dinah mythos. It's not any sort of grand step above the television shows that warrants a theatrical experience. The effects were no better than the TV show, and in fact, some looked worse. No wonder he found it literally forgettable. Mike owns the entire series of Tiga and has seen a few episodes of Dinah, most of which he enjoyed. He would simply rather have watched any of those than this film, though. More importantly, Mike was really turned off by the sappiness of this movie. He hates it whenever kid flicks rely on the zen-like wisdom of children to save the day. Mike has met children. They're not that smart. He also can't stand the saccharine, sweet, weak Peter Pan garbage. If you believe in fairies, I mean Ultraman Tiga... I mean, Ultraman Dinah, I mean, either clap your hands, I mean, send him your light and say, Gambare, Dinah. Yeah, that'll stop an alien invasion. Except it did, which is stupid. Mike also wasn't very impressed that an alien extermination ploy seemed concentrated on one city block and the huddled masses of the world consisted of about a hundred people in one room. Also, Mike thought the coolest monster in the film was killed about five minutes into it. The other two looked like a 1980s electronic Parker Brothers game and one of those and one of those macrame things his mom used to knit in the 70s gone horribly wrong. But he will give the film credit. It did the spaceship turns into monster thing at least a year before Godzilla 2000. Mike says that it's not a criticism specifically of this film, but he doesn't like the fact that in these Ultraman team-up movies, one of the Ultra beings takes the center stage while the other or others, are regulated to mere cameos. Also, not a fault of the film, but he finds Ultraman Tiga and Ultraman Dinah to be entirely too physically similar to one another. He doesn't know if he could tell one from the other at a casual glance. Hey man, don't look at me. I have lots of Ultra friends. Mike has yet to see an Ultraman film, and admittedly, he hasn't seen many, which raises the bar from the shows that they are based on. And there you have it. That is our Daikaiju discussion for the month of June. All right, now I should, uh, let me look up what the next movie is so we could figure out what we're doing for July. Oh, sweet. Dudes, we are kicking into the new stuff. So, I am pleased to announce that the Daikaiju discussion extension, I don't have a good name for that yet. Extended Daikaiju Discussions? Uh, international Daikaiju Discussion? I don't know. Whatever we're going to call it, it begins now. July 2016's assignment is Troll Hunter from 2010. I can't wait 
to hear what you guys have to say about that. Now, Troll Hunter obviously is available legitimately here on Blu-ray and DVD, but if you have any services like Netflix or Hulu or, you know, video on demand, check that out. It might be on one of those services. You might already have it at your fingertips. Now, the deadline for getting your homework in for Troll Hunter is going to be July 22nd. Please have your thoughts, questions, and reviews sent in, submitted through the contact form at kaijucast.com before or by the 22nd of July. Ooh, Troll Hunter. So exciting. I do not have really any news to share, but we do have some catastrophic events to cover. So I guess because I don't have a catastrophic events sounder, we'll just use the spoiler warning. Now hear this, now hear this. We have massive spoilers again. I repeat, massive spoilers. Ah, <laughs> uh, I do weird things when I'm by myself. What can I say? It's uh, fun to be kind of crazy like this sometimes. Anyway, uh, hey, catastrophic events. You know what? We are going to talk about some things that are happening, hopefully, in an area near you. Now, hopefully you heard the last episode where I covered G-Fest, which is happening July 15th, 16th, and 17th in Chicago, Illinois, technically Rosemont, Illinois, at the Crown Plaza Hotel. I will be there amongst a lot of other G-Fans and uh, Kaiju Freaks. I am going to be doing some really cool things, starting in chronological order. I will be tabling at Artist Alley. I'll be using the Kadoja table on Friday, so make sure if you come see me on Friday, uh, if you want to buy any prints or anything, that's what I'm going to have for sale, along with, you know, lanyards, stickers, patches, etc. And, of course, I'll be there from the opening of the Artist Alley till when it closes. I think that's like 12 to 5. Please swing by. I would love to see you again if I've already met you, and if I haven't met you before, definitely head on over and uh, introduce yourself. I love meeting listeners, and I love being at G-Fest. It's so much fun. It's such a great weekend. And I talked about this a lot more in the last episode, so I'm just going to briefly cover the rest of the schedule. Saturday night at uh, 8 p.m., we are having our listener party out on the patio of the Crown Plaza Hotel. And this is sponsored by Spooky Pinball. Uh, These guys, Charlie and Bug, from the Spooky Pinball podcast, they have their own little boutique pinball company. And they're really awesome dudes, and they've been listeners for a long time. And they wanted to do something super rad for KaijuCast listeners. So at G-Fest, they're bringing in a whole bunch of beer and snacks and stuff and uh, really turning the listener party, like really raising the bar for this thing, turning it into a monster of its own. Um, we're uh, super thankful that Charlie is has reached out and is doing this. We may have some other cool stuff and some stuff to give away at the party. We're still kind of organizing it all and getting it all ready. I'm, I'm really excited. Normally I would talk about this at the end of the G-Fest stuff, but I just had to break into it right now. So then we got our regular scheduled stuff like panels at 2 p.m. on Sunday. I will be part of the Godzilla Masterpiece Theater where Keith Foster, David Dopko, and I will be doing a comedic live reading of two Godzilla comics. It should be a ton of fun. So please swing by 2 p.m. on Sunday. Also, if you're still around at 4 p.m. on Sunday, that's when we're doing our live KaijuCast panel, and the guests are going to be Hiroshi Sagai and Sojiro Uchino, the two masterminds behind the Gotochi Kaiju Project. 
I'm really psyched because my schedule is way more relaxed than it was last year. Last year was insane. I'm so, so glad that I am not doing that insanity. Uh, special guests this year are Akira Takarada, Bin Furuya, Hiroko Sakurai, Linda Miller, Yoshikazu Ishii, Hiroshi Sagai, Sojiro Uchino, Robert Scott Field, August Ragoni, Tony Isabella, Carl Craig, and me. Just kidding. I'm not a guest at G-Fest. <laughs> but I am excited and really looking forward to seeing those of you who come out to the fest every year and the newbies who are going to be there. If you've never been before, you should definitely check it out. It's in Chicago, July 15th, 16th, and 17th. And this is, yeah, G-Fest 23. Got to move on to the next events, though. Fandom Fest is happening just a uh, week or so, like two weeks after G-Fest, July 29th through the 31st. They're going to be having the first ever appearance anywhere of the four Godzilla suit actors all together. Haruo Nakajima, Kenpachiro Satsuma, Sutomo Kitagawa, Mizuho Yoshida, and if that's not enough, they've got Bin Furuya there. So you can go to fandomfest.com for tickets to that. I actually know a fair amount of people who are going to be going. This is going to be uh, a big deal because G fans are going to this. Some of them are choosing to go to Fandom Fest over G Fest. To that I say good day, sir. Not cool, bro. Bros. Multiple bros. I know. It's, it's lame. But regardless, I will miss my peeps who are going to be there. And we're moving on to Paramorphicon, which will be August 12th through the 14th in Los Angeles, California. The first USA appearance of the four Zoo Ranger actors together. I don't know why I went up like that, but whatever. Also the first appearance of Keiichi Wada from Die Ranger. And since I aced this last time, let's see if I can do it again. The special guests from Japan will be Yuta Mochizuki, Seiju Umon, Takumi Hashimoto, Reiko Chiba, Keiichi Wada, and Sutomo Kitagawa, you can go to officialpowermorphicon.com to see more information and get your tickets, I'm sure. Also, we'll have these links in the show notes. Next up, Alien Con in October, the 28th through the 30th in Santa Clara, California. This will be the first West Coast appearance of all three Godzilla suit actors together, Haruo Nakajima, Kempichiro Satsuma, and Sutomo Kitagawa. Go to thealiencon.com to get more information. I think I'm going to go to that. I'm pretty solidly on board with going down for that weekend. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, dude, there's one more thing I forgot to mention. It just came in. This is almost kind of like breaking news for catastrophic events. Rift Tracks is going to be taking on the original Mothra this August. I'll be honest, I'm only really familiar with the original Mystery Science Theater stuff, meaning Joel Hodgson and moving into Mike Nelson, that sort of era, and not even all of Mike Nelson, to be perfectly honest, because really, just the stuff with Crow and Tom Servo and Mike and Gypsy and, you know, Cambot, I did that totally backwards. Anyway, Rift Tracks, which is sort of uh, part of the original Mystery Science Theater group, Rift Tracks is going to be doing Mothra in August. I'll have a link in the show notes to a Den of Geek article where you can get more information. Rift Tracks' Mothra will be broadcast to movie theaters live on Thursday, August 18th via Fathom Events with a replay on Tuesday, August 23rd. 
I'll be a little honest about this. It's I kind of cringe at the idea of these guys roasting a movie that not only I hold dear, but I legitimately think is a very good film. That said, there's some goofy stuff in it, and it's got the Mothra twins, so I'm sure there's bound to be lots of small people jokes. That is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'll remind you that if you want to turn in your Daikaiju discussion homework for Troll Hunter, please do, because I would love to see what you have to say. Also, the deadline for that is the 22nd of July. Hopefully, I will see you guys at G-Fest, and hey, hopefully, I'll see some of you guys wearing some Kaiju Cast swag from the Redbubble store. I've been seeing some people buying some stuff, so hopefully, you're starting to get those products and... um I'm actually wearing a shirt right now from my Redbubble account, and I'm very happy with the quality. It's not not screen-printed stuff, of course, but, you know, for being digitally printed and done up, they're pretty awesome. So uh, that is it. I'm going to close out the show. If you found the KaijuCast through iTunes or some other podcast directory, please point your web browsers to kaijucast.com, where you can see everything that we're doing, everything that we've done like episodes, every episode is on the website. The full Daikaiju discussion schedule is up there. Links to all of our social media things like Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, YouTube. Oh my gosh, YouTube. When am I going to make another video? Right, Hachi? Solo shows, am I right, guys? Oh, and you can also see the show notes for this particular episode there. Thanks to the two mics for sending in their Daikaiju discussion homework, and uh, thanks to Bob Johnson for hooking me up with some more info on the Heisei situation with, uh, with Ultraman. We'll see you next month. Oh, and some really good stuff coming up. First up, we'll have an interview with Jeremy Robinson and Matt Frank, the creative team behind the first issue of Godzilla Rage Across Time. So until then, we'll see you around. Or, as I would say in Japanese, Ja Mata.